Just a heads up for listeners, there's some profanity in this episode. And also, while the characters in this story are still awaiting trial, their crimes are alleged. The Department of Justice announcing just within the past couple of minutes the arrest of two individuals in Manhattan this morning and the seizure of a massive $3.6 billion worth of cryptocurrency. Now, what the Department of Justice is saying here... Officials say this is the largest financial seizure in department history. The seizure is tied to the 2016 hack of a virtual currency exchange. And you would kind of assume that a heist of that nature would end up in the hands of some sort of international criminal cabal, just people that seemed to really know what they were doing. But actually, that money was tracked down to these two kind of weird, like, eccentric internet nerds, you know, like, presenting themselves as these, like, influencers and authorities, while also, in this case, as being full-on criminals. For Third Way and Goat Rodeo, this is To Catch a Hacker. This season, we're telling the story behind the largest financial seizure ever in history. $3.6 billion worth of laundered Bitcoin. This is the story about the crime and the people behind it. It's also a love story, a cringe rap music video, and a map to the unregulated gray space of a new type of money. We find ourselves in a cozy salon with dark walls. In the front of the room is a projection of a PowerPoint framed by black velvet drapes. The room is packed. We're gathered for tonight's talk titled, How to Social Engineer Your Way Into Anything. Okay, so first of all, what is social engineering? The expert tonight is a woman named Heather Morgan. Social engineering is basically, I hate the term manipulating, but it's, it's getting someone to share information or take an action that they otherwise would not. So who am I? Uh, one of the things I'm known for is being an expert on cold email or sales prospecting email. The other things Heather is known for, we'll get to them. But first and foremost, she wants to be known as an entrepreneur. So, cold email. You know, like spam, but somehow effective. Heather's something of a celebrity in the cold emailing field. And uh, if you want to learn more about that, I have a ton of presentations online if you Google my name and cold email. But uh, what we're here for is to teach you how to use social engineering in everyday life, whether you are trying to get a job, get a date, It's the act of getting what you want. In Heather's case, it's getting people to listen to her, to read her emails, her pitch, and buy into whatever she's selling. And just to note, this is the mid-20-teens. Sheryl Sandberg had just published Lean In, hashtag girlboss had become a thing, and both of these things were still received well. They're sort of lodestars for Heather. Uh, a lot of times, if you don't have an advantage, you have to create one for yourself, and how do you do that? I like to do that through social engineering. It sounds pretty innocuous, 
But in fact, what Heather is describing, social engineering is actually a type of cyber attack. It's about deception and manipulation. Think phishing campaigns. The media often wants us to think that social engineers are bad people, like hackers. Um, but a lot of entrepreneurs, especially really scrappy ones, are really effective social engineers. And Heather knows this because she's an entrepreneur. She recently founded her own company called Salesfolk, which helps businesses with their cold emailing. But pretty soon, her entrepreneurship and her company, even her search engine optimization, like when you Google her name, will be overshadowed by a vast secret that she's guarding right now. You can influence people a lot of ways. You can influence them with flattery, bribing them. You can also influence them with fear. Fear is a very delicate tactic. Fuck it up. You're going to be screwed. They're going to be angry. You know, they might call the cops on you. But if you do it right and subtly, it can work very, very well. Tonight, there's someone in the audience who knows her secret. But it's safe because they're in love. And it's his secret, too. He's anonymous among this crowd, but his name is Ilya Lichtenstein. Or sometimes he goes by Dutch. He's there in the third row, in an aisle seat, taking pictures on his phone of Heather doing her thing. And when an audience member asks her about ethics... Ilya silently grins while the crowd erupts in laughter. Yeah, so I'm a realist. Um, and I, I do actually believe that the ends justify the means sometimes. But like, you know, nothing I'm doing, I think my, my end goals aren't like bad or evil. Like I'm not trying to scam someone out of money or like, like get someone hurt in any way. Now, before we get to the big secret, here's the full picture. And it's about to get weird. Heather Morgan, she like seemed to see herself as the ideal example of like a progressive entrepreneur. This is Luke Winky. He's a journalist who covers the culture of the internet, kind of like the sociology of online communities. And according to Luke, Heather was very online. She would write stories for, like, Inc. about what it's like being a woman in tech and all that kind of girl bossy stuff that you would do if you kind of want to brand yourself that way. I feel like I live in two worlds with a little bit of overlap. So, like, there's the people who know Heather, the CEO, boss bitch, like, software, money-making monetizer. And then there's one of the other things Heather is known for. And then there's the people who know Razzlecon. Razzlecon, the first time she better win. And then she also had this alter ego called Razzlecon. Motherfucking crocodile of Wall Street. Where she would record like these, quite frankly, pretty bad rap songs around like Wall Street. Fuck your message at the beep. Beep, 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 beep. And like, they're both me. They're both just different sides of me. Heather had an alter ego, and that alter ego was a rapper, a rapper named Razzlecon. And 
and people have seen me get ratchet and pasties and you know be my synesthesia self completely unfiltered raw authentic she kind of positioned herself as someone that has like this outsider who had stormed in this world of finance and had kind of taken it over and was and was doing it her way Razzlecon is kind of like a billboard for Heather's success as an entrepreneur. She raps about all sorts of things, the COVID-19 pandemic, endometriosis, getting high in a cemetery. But the main through line to her music is being that CEO boss bitch. And she was going to wear her John Lennon sunglasses and, and, and twerk on the streets of uh, J.P. Morgan. Like that is, that is her kind of like, Re- reclaiming finance in, in her own name. I don't know. Like if you want any sort of public facing job or following or celebrity whatsoever, you just have to put yourself out there a lot. You have to kind of brand yourself. And our girl Razzlecom was trying to do that. You know, she was trying to make that happen. And Heather had made it happen. She was running her own company, speaking at these businessy conferences across Silicon Valley She had even contributed writing for Inc. Magazine and Forbes, all while producing raps as Razzlecon and art directing her own music videos. She was doing a lot. And because this is the 20 teens, it's all online. She has YouTube channels for both Razzlecon and sales folk, and they are full of content. What's up, Razzlecon here. There are clickbait vlogs on arts and crafts DIYs. Anyways, I want to tell you about one of my favorite things, Razzling. There are these unboxing videos, like one for a package of 25 prosthetic eyeballs. You guess what it is? Eyeballs, prosthetic eyeballs, or so they say. There are these TED Talk-esque inspirational vlogs. There is a whole world of opportunity out there. You can completely create your own destiny with words and software. And then there's the purely professional stuff. Hi, I'm Heather Morgan, and I'm here today with Sales Folk and Sales for Startups. Heather would host fellow entrepreneurs on her Sales Folk channel. In this one, she's talking to Ilya Lichtenstein, the co-founder and CEO of Mixtrank. Hi, Ilya. Hi. Thanks hey, for- Heather. Thanks for having me. Ilya is much less online, so he's a little more enigmatic. What we do know, he's a self-described serial entrepreneur and software engineer. He's launched several Silicon Valley startups, one with serious funding from Mark Cuban. You know, the Shark Tank guy? So my first question for you is, how are you able, as a startup, to get over a million in revenue in your first year uh, with very little people on board with your sales team and your company overall? Yeah, that's a good question. So, This video was recorded early in their courtship, in the early 20-teens. Ilya and Heather had just met as entrepreneurs in the startup world in Silicon Valley. It was the very beginning of their journey together. And for all of Heather's chronic onlineness, their personal relationship is a little more obscure. One of the only glimpses we get of this time in their lives is in their LinkedIn testimonials of each other. When Heather chooses to take you on as a client, she dives deep into your customers' minds, developing a nuanced understanding of their desires, needs, and fears. Heather crafts precisely targeted messaging that sticks in customers' brains like a finely sharpened meat hook. A finely sharpened meat hook. Talk to her now. 
they move to New York together, start advising at each other's companies, and eventually get engaged. Together, they were two scrappy social engineers building their businesses, their brands, unafraid to act on even the most unconventional opportunities that might somehow help them on their way. Both of these people clearly had an idea of the life they wanted and the kind of reputation they wanted and that kind of legitimacy they wanted. Heather clearly knew how to play the game even beyond some of the weird stuff she was doing as Razzlecon, but at the same time just obviously was guarding pretty humongous secrets. And after trying to become famous, basically, make it as influencers, uh, the only thing that Ilya and Heather ended up becoming truly famous for was running one of the largest crypto laundering schemes in the history of uh, <laughs> the history of finance. Federal agents arrested Elia Lichtenstein and Heather Morgan in Manhattan this morning on money laundering and conspiracy charges. This New York duo, dubbed the Crypto Couple, are tech entrepreneurs charged with laundering billions in Bitcoin. The case against them stems from the 2016 hack of the Bitfinex virtual currency exchange. They are not charging them, interestingly enough, with the hack. This is the largest seizure of cryptocurrency ever by U.S. law enforcement. It is also the department's largest single financial seizure in its history. This was like early 2022. That was at a moment where there was this Bitcoin boom going. As it turns out, cryptocurrency was a huge part of Ilya and Heather's lives for the past maybe six years. But you wouldn't know it if you were following them. Until February of 2022, when the news of their arrest made headlines. They were instantly dubbed the crypto couple and had become something like the poster children for a new frontier of digital crime. A crime based on sheer opportunity, the allure of the abundance of an intangible asset, its supposed anonymity, and its extremely open-ended regulation in the U.S. But even before Heather and Ilya made headlines, crypto itself was having a big moment. And it was the first time crypto had like fully penetrated the mainstream in the sense that like Matt Damon was doing crypto commercials. The four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. This Matt Damon ad for Crypto.com ran during the Super Bowl that year, which took place shortly after the couple's arrest. It wasn't the only Super Bowl ad for cryptocurrency. And we were all becoming accustomed to this sort of crypto subculture out there. But believe me, the subculture had been thriving for many years before 2022. Bitcoin, for instance, came on the scene in 2009. So those early 20-teens were formative. The whole crypto boom was such a deeply online movement in so many ways. And there is a real deep kind of meme DNA in, in all of crypto to communicate about crypto, one has to be fluent in internet memes in, in, in some capacity. So yeah, that's Heather and Ilya. If you've spent any time on Twitter, you probably know what Luke is talking about. I mean, Dogecoin started as a joke, but it's a legitimate cryptocurrency. It's a meme coin. But behind the memes and marketing is real earnest intent. 
It's reminiscent of that entrepreneurial spirit Ilya and Heather advertise. In crypto, I think you can pretty easily feel like you're involved in a really positive movement and you're doing a good thing, that you're destabilizing global finance, you're leaving your mark, finally you you found a way to conquer a world that's pretty elite and oppressive to outsiders. For Heather, you know, the crocodile of Wall Street, this abrasion against traditional finance was an aspiration, much like breaking into the startup world itself. And she loved playing the part of someone who'd made it. Fucking on investors, engineers, my fuckboys weren't dumb. Would have made hella income. Love cash, got a green thumb. Software built my kingdom. To tell this story further, you have to understand how Bitcoin works. Because you have to understand what goes into laundering it. And then how Ilya and Heather were traced back to this unbelievable sum of $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin. In the world of finance prior to cryptocurrency, everything you bought had to go through a bank or credit card company. And this feels silly to say, but you'd need the bank involved because basically they would verify that you actually had the money to spend. They'd keep track of the funds in your account. And part of their job is keeping it all secure. And there are a few, some might say, issues with the traditional financial system. You know, there are fees, limitations in how you can access and send your money. There's the question of whether you can open up a bank account in the first place. And then you have to keep depositing a certain amount into it just to avoid even more fees. And also, by their nature, banks have access to your account. They have oversight. That's a lot of trust. Now, cryptocurrency takes out the middleman of the bank. When people say cryptocurrency is decentralized, this is what they mean. Bitcoin users have total control over their Bitcoin. They can store, send, and receive it without involving any third party. And the reason they're able to do this is a thing called the blockchain. The blockchain is a ledger of all the transactions of a given cryptocurrency that have ever taken place. This is Dr. Sarah Micklejohn. She's a professor in cryptography and security at University College London. So the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, is really just a list of all Bitcoin transactions. These transactions are stored in blocks, and these blocks really provide a sort of definitive ordering mechanism in terms of being able to say which transaction happened before or after which other transaction. When you go to blockchain.com, you can watch the transactions flow. And you should check it out. It's pretty cool to witness in real time. So for every single transaction that's made, you can see the amount of Bitcoin and what it's worth in US dollars. In the span of a second, there are numerous different transactions recorded. One transaction worth $2 to another worth $400 to yet another worth $68,000 and more. So let's say you click on one of those transactions. You're brought to a screen that's basically a digital receipt. You can see the unique identifier code generated for this individual transaction and a series of other alphanumeric codes representing the sender and the recipient, and something called the change address, which we'll get into in the next episode. And if you got none of that, here it is in a simpler way. Every transaction has a receipt, a record, 
and anyone in the world can snoop on all the interesting minute details of that transaction. So from this receipt, you can even click through to the recipient's account where you can see how many times they've transacted and the total sum of Bitcoin they've ever sent and received. It's totally public. Ilya and Heather were charged with laundering Bitcoin, which means, at a base level, they were hiding their money by spending it. So how exactly does that work when you have a public ledger recording your every move? Well, the thing is, nowhere in the transaction data is any publicly identifiable information. For this reason, cryptocurrency usually gives users the impression of anonymity. So in Bitcoin, users, you know, they don't go by their names. What they do is they go by many different pseudonyms. The pseudonym, that's the code representing the sender. There are a few other names for pseudonyms, ironically. They're also called public keys or virtual currency addresses. But for our purposes, we'll stick with pseudonyms. You can think of them like bank account numbers, but again, unlike bank account numbers, they are completely public. And in this example, the so-called bank account they're associated with is called a wallet. Pretty simple concept, it's where users can access their money. And this part is private. You need a key to get into your wallet. Now, one user can have as many wallets as they want, with each wallet containing multiple different pseudonyms. It's kind of like one person making hundreds of email accounts. They may all be different accounts with different emails, but in the end, it's just one human. One user in the Bitcoin network might go by hundreds, thousands, millions of different pseudonyms, but it's always going to be the same user or more realistically, the same entity. And to be clear, this is totally standard use of the system. There's nothing criminal or sketchy about it. But if you're wondering, yes, Ilya and Heather were tied to thousands of pseudonyms. When we look at Bitcoin transactions, you know, if we download the blockchain and go through it, we're going to see tens or hundreds of millions of these different pseudonyms. But we know that many of those pseudonyms will represent one entity. We just don't know who that one entity is. Until they go to take their Bitcoin out of their wallet and convert it into fiat currency, like the US dollar or the euro since users have to do this through exchanges, which do require personal information. The real link between your activity in the Bitcoin network and your actual real identity really comes via these external services like exchanges. So exchanges are the way that people get money into and out of Bitcoin, right? The way that they change dollars or, or pounds or euros into Bitcoins. And the idea is that these exchanges are regulated entities, you know, exchanges operating in a lot of jurisdictions in the world. A lot of them are quite careful about this. They comply with you know, your customer and anti-laundering regulations. So while Bitcoin may seem private, Bitcoin is not anonymous. There's still this kind of conception of Bitcoin as as private because it's using these pseudonyms. And it's not anonymous at all that in using Bitcoin, you are revealing far more information than you are revealing, certainly by using cash. You know, anyone in the world can open up their browser, go to one of these blockchain explorers and start clicking around. Oh yes, you can follow the money. 
This is called blockchain analysis. Our goal ultimately in all of this kind of analysis is to understand what are these entities doing? How are they transacting? How is money changing hands in meaningful ways? If I can confidently link your activity in the Bitcoin network right to the doorsteps of an exchange, then if I have subpoena power, I can go to that exchange and I can say, hey, it's kind of important that I learn who that account belongs to. There are also some other ways for analysts to bridge that gap between transaction and individual. We'll get into some of that next episode, when we break down how Ilya and Heather maintained that massive web of accounts and transactions for six years before the federal seizure. And with such a massive web, there was a massive investigation. We'll also get into how the feds landed on Ilya and Heather's doorstep. Because, remember, while they were cringe-wrapping and social media-influencing and TED-talking at standing-room-only salons, they were also laundering a lot of Bitcoin. So it begs the question, all that self-described success, was that just an elaborate facade of social engineering? Another set of alter egos? Who really are these people? Um, and I, I do actually believe that it is justified means sometimes, but like, you know, it's nothing I'm doing. I think my, my end goals aren't like bad or evil. Like I'm not trying to scam someone out of money or like, like get someone hurt in any way. And I think that was the thing that was both kind of funny and tragic about this whole story is uh, just how all that was revealed to be a complete farce and it all came tumbling down. And most importantly, who is left holding the bag? It's digital finance, right? The victimhood is kind of abstracted away a little bit. To Catch a Hacker is a series from Third Way and Goat Rodeo. This episode was produced and written by me, Jay Venables, and production assistance by Ian Enright. Special thanks to Valerie Shen and Mike Sexton for sharing their expertise with us. The archival tape on crypto you heard was from NPR, CNBC, and NBC. The music you heard was by Goat Rodeo, sampled from RazzleCon. To learn more about crypto crime, cybersecurity, and law enforcement policy issues, visit thirdway.org. You can find more episodes of To Catch a Hacker wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.